and welcome to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. The show is presented to you today by Gasowitz Frankel, a law firm dedicated to resolving disputes involving your wealth, whether it be through your will, your trust, your business, or your investments. For news, pictures, and tips, go to our website at gaslowitzfrankel.com or follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute. Our show's hashtag is Wealth Matters. Your hosts today are Craig Frankel and Robert Port, and we're talking about the issues and challenges in structuring and managing an investment portfolio. As you may know, our law firm is participating in a year of charitable giving in celebration of our 25th anniversary. So before we start the show, we want to thank our employees for giving to some wonderful charities so far this year, including Families First, Hero Box, Atlanta Pet Rescue, and Hillside Hospital. Follow us on Facebook at The State Dispute or on our website, gaswitzfrankel.com, for updates. And now it's time to introduce our guests. We are pleased to have with us today Bill Leonard, an attorney with Taylor English Duma, and Lane Steinberger, partner and chief investment officer with Redwood Wealth Management. Let me ask each of you, uh, Lane and Bill, to give us a brief overview of uh, yourselves, what you do, and uh, the uh, firms you work for. Uh, Bill, you first. Okay. Um I grew up on a farm in Alabama, but I guess you don't want me to start that far back, do you? <laughs> I, uh, I've been a lawyer in Atlanta for 36 years, um, and uh, over the last several years, I've been with uh, Taylor English Duma, which is a firm that started 10 years ago. In the 10 years— He says several. He means nine years. Yeah. We've, uh, the firm's grown in those 10 years from four lawyers to over 130 now. We do pretty much every area of the law, but my practice is on business litigation. I've done, uh, in, the, in the investment arena, I've handled uh, uh, arbitrations on both sides, really, for claimants at times and for brokerage firms and, and uh, registered representatives, which is a little unusual. Lawyers tend to work on one side or the other and not both. Beyond that, I've done... Uh, uh, securities laws, class action defense work, uh, a lot of corporate governance work, which is um, helping business owners with internal disputes uh, between shareholders of a company or members of a limited liability company or partners in a partnership. Uh, and then uh, during the recent economic downturn, Georgia was uh, had the dubious distinction of being number one in bank failures, and I did a lot of work for the FDIC investigating failed banks and sometimes bringing claims against directors, officers, accountants, lawyers, and so forth. And our, our guests may be interested in knowing that I met Bill first when we opposed each other in a case. I was representing some folks who had some issues with how their investments were handled, and Bill represented the uh, the uh, in uh, the advisor and, and his firm, and uh, I think our listeners may be uh, interested to see that uh, even though we can be tough adversaries, we can, we can also uh, uh, get to know each other on a different level. Lane, tell us about uh, your practice and your firm. Uh, well, I've basically been in money management in some capacity for the past 20 years or so. I originally started out in currency trading and uh, eventually moved on to uh, working in the pension fund right here in Atlanta, Bell South. Um, it's actually a pretty sizable fund, about $20 billion. And uh, once um, Bell South eventually got bought out by AT&T, they basically said, you can go to San Antonio, New Jersey. Which one do you want? And 
my wife was from Atlanta. We were on our first child, and she said, uh, we're staying here. So needless to say, I started my own money management business um, and eventually merged that firm with a couple other guys here in Alpharetta, Georgia. And uh, now we manage about $400 million, uh, mainly for high net worth worth individuals. And um, we not only do money management, but we also do financial planning in addition to that. Okay, thank you. Now, our, our topic today are the issues and challenges in structuring and managing an investment portfolio. So let me let me ask first uh, this question, just broadly, uh, to you, Lane, which is talk broadly about the types of strategies that different advisors may have uh, for on a continuum, as I understand it, from passive to active, as well as some of the academic uh, theories that inform how one invests. And, and if you will, uh, feel free to describe how you approach it and your reasons for uh, adopting the philosophies you've, you've approached. Hmm. That's a big question and can be a long question. Uh, generally, there are all types of advisors out there. You'll see advisors at firms like Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley. They tend to be the large brokerage firms. Um, you also see insurance uh, companies also offering uh, investment-type strategies. Um, in general, generally in the past, and really still even now today, that uh, most of the industry has very, been very commission-driven um, and very transaction-driven, meaning that someone calls you up and says, hey, i got a great stock for you. You need to buy it. Um, it's going to go up. And, you know, a week later they say, oh, that stock's no good now. Let's sell it. And, you know, because I'm thinking it's going to go down. Um, and the person generally makes a commission on that transaction. Um, so, you know, this type of a, an advisor, in, you know, in my opinion, is, is, is not the best way uh, to go. Uh, in general, that person's a salesperson who they're hired to sell. So when these large brokerage firms come in, they, you know, they're not looking for a guy with the, what's called a CFA, a Chartered Financial Analyst, which is a, almost a requirement in um, in the world that I came from, the pension fund world, um, where you know you're dealing with large institutional managers. You know they're looking for the type of person that can sell and that can uh, you know bring in the most business and create the most transactions. Um, we off we um, operate a little bit differently. We're what's called a fee only advisor. Um, and being fee only means that uh, we're not worried about selling you a great stock or selling you a great sector. And the example I like to give clients is, you know, in the pension fund world, we didn't have stockbrokers calling us up. We had, uh, you know, we had large portfolios that we dealt with that we spread out among all different types of investments uh, across the world, um, mainly using fund managers. Um, there's kind of a myth out there that, um, you know, I need to buy a great stock. Uh, or I need to, you know, 30 great stocks and 30 great industries, and my returns are going to be higher. And uh, we're not big believers in that. We're big believers in, you know, you can have 10,000 stocks in your portfolio and still get higher returns via mutual funds. Um, when, when you're doing investments now and you're out, or you are a CFA, mm -hmm. do you do the investments of yourself or you're still going to be using a broker to place or own them? Well, uh, and, uh, there's all types. So, uh, you know, our firm's uh, fee-only firm, we're independent, meaning that we have a custodian involved. So most of the, uh, every, uh, basically all the accounts are held at Fidelity Investments. Uh, 
or it could be Schwab or TD Ameritrade. Those are popular custodians that independent advisors use. Um, so we generally would go through Fidelity. Uh, you want that. I mean, if you think of uh, the Bernie Madoffs of the world, he did not have a, a third-party custodian in between him and the client. He had uh, his custodian was Bernie Madoff Securities, and it allowed him to manipulate the statements and such, uh, and have control over what the client was seeing. Um, the way we operate is your investments reside at Fidelity. We have no control over what Fidelity shows you, meaning they send you the statement. You go to Fidelity.com every day and can see your investments. So to our listeners, one thing you're suggesting is regardless of, of which advisor you use, you want to make sure that you're getting independent reporting. So at least you can see what's going on. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And that did not happen in Bernie Madoff's case. Bill, let me ask you a question before we jump into how one goes about investing, because I'm always interested in how one chooses an investor. And sometimes you choose, you know, your insurance agents by who you go to church with or who's on the softball team. But let's assume we're going to do a better or a more thorough examination. You're looking at investors for your clients or you're seeing a dispute. Are you looking for those who are independent investor advisors or are you suggesting brokers or some combination? In my line of work, I don't usually make those kind of suggestions, and clients don't ask me really that kind of thing. But, I mean, for myself, I'm more interested in someone who is not the sales type, who's not out to sell. And I certainly don't um, I, I don't uh, go along with the cold calls that I get occasionally from uh, young brokers trying to build a book. Um, but... Uh, I, I like the idea of uh, an independent money manager. Um, I also, uh, frankly, myself, am now dealing with uh, you know a Scott Trade account and kind of making my own choices uh, after several years of not being very satisfied with the advice I was getting. So uh, it, there are different ways to do it. And Bill, I, I as I said at the outset, you uh, and you said at the outset, you've been on both sides of these type of cases, both defending advisors and pursuing claims against advisors. When when you think back to the extent you you have a, a thought about what gets people into trouble or or the challenges that an advisor has in in managing someone's portfolio, do you have any sort of broad observations about you know, what it is that um, those challenges are from the advisor perspective and how they're dealing with their client, the investor? My overall advice is document, document, document. I mean, uh, so many times in these disputes, it's a he said, she said situation where the broker is saying, I warned the customer about this and he refused to listen. And the customer is saying, he never told me that. I would have done differently if he'd told me that. And there's no contemporaneous notes. There's no confirming email. There's nothing but one word, one's word against the other. And it's who knows how that's going to turn out in a, in a court case or an arbitration. So to me, that's one of the most important things. Now, from the broker's perspective, that's sometimes easier said than done because the compliance department at a typical brokerage house doesn't want the broker shooting out emails all the time. Uh, they want some control over what's going out, and it can be sometimes a cumbersome process to get an email out for a broker. But I think that's important to do what the uh, registered rep can do to document things um, that, that he or she is doing. The word is communicate. If you, the more you t tell the, 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 
the less likely the dispute or more likely the dispute will come faster when it's a smaller dispute. From a broker side or from a fiduciary side, what I find the best is even if you can't get an email out, jot down notes to the file. Yes. Have it done contemporaneous. And if you are the customer, write down the advice that you got and ask questions because we, all of us, and this is kind of the beauty of a, of a financial planner or advisor, we don't necessarily, as customers, we're not sophisticated enough. We sometimes don't really understand. We think we did. But the truth is, we didn't. Yeah, and my sense of it is that the lack of understanding requires some education by folks who are advisors. And oftentimes, I think I see a disconnect between what the advisor wants and what the client wants. For example, a client who wants to generate a lot of income in an, in, in an environment where that's not possible, or an, a client who wants very high returns beyond market returns, quote, beating the market all the time when that's not possible. And, and sometimes I've often thought that to avoid some of the issues I see advisors get into, they ought to refuse to take on a client if there's a mismatch like that. Do you have a thought about that, Lane? <clears throat> Well, to add to that, um, you know, coming from the institutional world to the retail world, um, um, you find that, uh, you know, you see these funds out there like PIMCO, Total Return Fund. That at one time was the most popular bond fund uh, in the U.S. and one of the most common funds that you see uh, most advisors use. Uh, and, you know, my find is when talking to uh, advisors in the retail world, 99% of them had no idea what was in that fund. So when you op opened up the prospectus of the PIMCO Total Return Fund, uh, literally there would be 20 pages uh, just on the amount of credit or listing the credit default swaps, uh, common derivatives that, you know, you heard a lot about during the 2008 crash. Um, the majority of buyers did not know that. So there were a lot of, it was, it was basically a sophisticated type of uh, hedge fund, not a pure bond fund. So it's not just the people that need to be educated, it's, the, it's, it's also the advisors out there. I mean, the biggest problem with the industry that I see is the fact that, you know, I liken it to the lawyers right here. I mean, they go to school for four years, uh, undergrad, and then they go to law school for another three years. And then after that, they have to take a rigorous exam and pass that exam to become a lawyer. Um, you know, and you know how long it takes for a doctor. And, you know, they have a, a similar situation, if not more school. Um, uh, investment advisor can basically go from bagging groceries to becoming an investment advisor uh, in about a month. They have to take, you know, a Series 7 exam. It, you know, it's tough. It's, it's not that hard. Um, and uh, so you see a lot of advisors that, yeah, they may be offering up these investments and this advice, and they really don't completely understand it themselves. You are listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are your hosts. I'm Robert Port, and with me is Craig Frankel from the fiduciary litigation law firm of Gas Lewis Frankel. We're talking today with Bill Leonard and Lane Steinberger, discussing the topic of issues and challenges in structuring and managing an investment portfolio. Let, let's start with some education stuff. So you're a client coming in, and what I just think I heard you say is, before you choose your advisor, 
you're going to need to know a little bit about what they do in their background. Mm-hmm. And and so one of the first things we would tell our listeners is look at them. Don't just talk to them and see you know that you like them. Go look at their website, see their education. But let's do the other side. Mm-hmm. You're now an investor uh, advisor, and a new investor comes in. What are some things that you need to be suggesting to them, and what should they be thinking about as they get comfortable with you? And I'll, I'll, I'll tell the story, of course. Every time I've been to an investment advisor, the first question I've got is, what is your risk tolerance? <clears throat> A question that I am not capable of answering without some guidance. That is probably the toughest question uh, out there. And, you know, we, ha- we used to have all sorts of uh, ways to tease out what your risk tolerance was. And we thought they worked well until 2008. And we found out very quickly that people that thought they had a high risk tolerance did not. Um, 2008, if everybody remembers, is when the stock market effectively uh, dropped about 40 percent uh, during that time, um, which was you know, a pretty large movement in- to the downside. Uh, which scared a lot of people. Um, so, you know, for me, it starts, I'm actually a certified financial planner and a CFA. So for me, it starts with a financial plan. The first thing I'd want to sit down with you to do is before I even look at your or decide on your portfolio is to look at, um, you know, your retirement plan, you know, and then that can vary. You know, if you're 30 years old, your retirement plan is going to be a lot different from uh, somebody who's going to retire next year. So, uh, so let's break it down into s- simple parts for us to look at. So one of the things you're saying is let's look at how soon you're going to be retiring. So what you've got already and how soon you're going to be retiring. What else do mm-hmm. we look at? Um, you know, first of all, what your income is, you know, how, you know, how much can you potentially save, uh, what your expectation is. Uh, what do you, you know, do you want to retire, have 10 homes across the world or are you, you know, you have a lifestyle that where you're probably going to stay in the same small house, have it paid off by the time you retire. So there's, there, there's various uh, things there. And let's talk about anticipated income. I, I am shocked. I have a college kid mm-hmm. and I am shocked by what I hear him saying about where he's going to be working and how many jobs he's going to have. But the numbers are shocking. It's like he'll have estimated 20 or 30 jobs between now and retirement. When I was graduating from law school, you know, the view was two or three. Now, if you graduate from law school, it's five to 10, even if you stay as a lawyer. How do you advise somebody who's in a job that may not be there 10 years or two years from now? Well, the job doesn't concern me. It's, uh, it's how well they save and if they're going to save. If you, you know, I would tell your son to start saving right away and very early. Uh, the biggest issue that we see with kind of the— Maybe un- you should tell him. He doesn't really <laughs> listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, send him in. Send him in. Um, and, you know, the, I, I see a pretty big issue, especially we deal with a lot of young professionals, uh, with the young professional types. Um, you know, the retired types, uh, retired clients that we have, and we typically have some sort of pension fund. Well, those are going away. Um, so they didn't necessarily have to save a lot in their 401k because they knew they'd have a pretty big pension coming. Um, the, and so they never really teach their kids that they need to save. And the thing is, to replace a $40,000 pension a year, you need about a million dollars. Um, that's quite a bit of money. Um, so I think the, there's a big issue with just um, how much you're saving. They can change jobs as much as, want, as, much as they want, um, but 
immediately get in that 401k and treat the 401k as a tax, meaning that, you know, you could put in about $18,000 a year in your 401k, get it in there uh, and start it early. If you start at right when you uh, begin your first job, you know, at 22 and continue that, you're going to be, uh, you know, pretty wealthy by the time you hit your 40s and 50s. So when you um, say looking at savings, you're not only looking at how much you save, but your pattern of saving over time whether you were making $20,000 a year or $200,000 a year, how you go about saving. Oh, exactly. I mean, it's basically the concept of if you ever read the book about uh, the millionaire, millionaire next door, you don't necessarily need to make a lot of money to uh, save up a million dollars. It's just about when you start saving and how much you start saving right away. And Bill, let me, let me turn the question sideways. So when you see clients who have difficulty with their investments or their advisor, how many relate back to having different expectations when they started? I think quite a lot of them do. Um, a lot of times the, uh, the broker is not asking enough questions and not really getting to the heart of things like risk tolerance um, and then not continuing to talk to the customer as, as the relationship builds, but kind of going off on his or her own with things, whether it's a discretionary account or a non-discretionary account, just kind of doing things without adequate communication. Uh, so I, I think a lot of that hinges on a bad start to the relationship that then gets worse progressively. And I will tell you from our side, where we're seeing disputes when they really get heightened, we go back and look at the original file. And one of the things we always look at is the investment policy statement. And it is shocking sometimes how the, in, the investment approaches that are used um, don't match that statement. And so what I would tell clients, potential clients, is when you meet with your broker, look at that statement a lot. Make sure you understand it and revisit it from time to time. From the investor side, from the advisor side, make sure that statement is updated and, and, and reflects the changes in whatever circumstances your client has. So let's jump into that. Let's So, so now you've got the client, you've talked them through kind of what they should expect. Now kind of talk about, if we can, and Lane, we can start with you, what are their choices for the types of investing? What types of strategies or things should they be looking at? Or should you be looking at with them? Well, there's one million strategies out there. Um, you know, it starts with individual stocks. We don't generally recommend individual stocks. Uh, in my opinion, you don't. it's a myth you know, to believe that you have to own individual stocks to achieve higher returns. Um, we begin with uh, uh, mutual funds, and there are all types of mutual funds out there. Uh, you know, it starts with stock funds. Um, and, you know, we analyze uh, people's portfolios uh, from other firms when they first join our firm. And the, the main issue I see is the lack of diversification. Uh, and diversification um, means that, the, you know, the majority of uh, their investments that I see are heavily weighted in large blue-cap uh, firms, you know, like uh, Apple and IBM and, the, you know, the big companies that you hear about every day. Uh, there's, there's a couple of reasons for that. I mean, people like to uh, invest in things that they know about. Um, and the large firms you hear about every day and you use their products every day. When you say heavily invested, give mm -hmm. us a percentage so we know what we're measuring. Well, heavily invested, meaning that they would have, you know, again, it depends on the person, but 80% of their stock portfolio in large cap blue chip stocks. 
Um, again, people are familiar with them, and uh, in the brokerage world had has pushed those quite a bit, not only in the uh, via funds, but also individual stocks. Uh, again, because people are familiar with those stocks, and that's what sells. Um, so my first recommendation, generally in that case, is, hey, we need to get this portfolio diversified. Diversified meaning, means that there are mid-cap stocks and small-cap stocks out there also in the U.S. An example of mid-cap stock would be Under Armour. It's a fast-growing stock. And they're not quite a large cap. They're right in the middle. Um, a small cap stock may be, you know, uh, uh, Domino's Pizza. It's a small cap stock. So no, it's no, it's no. now Domino's. They dropped the pizza word. Oh, I'm sorry. They, they sell so much other food. <laughs> so when you talk yeah. about diversification, though, you're talking about now between kind of classifications. So mm -hmm. different types of stock, different types of bonds. Mm -hmm. Well, different types of stock. So you have all different types of, of uh, you have all different sizes of companies, but also internationally. And that's a big problem I see uh, these days, too, is the fact that people don't have enough international stocks in their portfolio. People tend to view international stocks as being very risky, meaning that they tend to move uh, up and down, you know, much more than the U.S. market. Um, however, they're good diversifiers, and you know, it's the old "don't put all your eggs in one basket." You know, the United States is a great country. I believe it's going to continue to grow. I think we're, uh, you know, just our entrepreneurial culture that we have is going to just encourage a lot of innovation and great companies. However, things happen, um, and there are a lot of good companies overseas. I mean, people don't think about Samsung. Samsung is a Korean company. Well, that's considered an emerging market stock. Some people view emerging market stocks as risky, but, you know, Samsung's a pretty solid company. Uh, BP is another one. Um, BMW, you know, is a German stock. So you need, to, you need to have all these other types of investments in your portfolio, not only domestically, but also uh, internationally, too. And, and Lane, get, being the good attorney, even though you've mentioned a number of individual stocks, um, of course, nothing we say here is a recommendation, but you, you mm -hmm. use those as examples of why one should diversify and examples of companies perhaps located in other places or in other industries that, mm -hmm. that lead to diversification. Bill, when I, when I look at a case, and, and generally I often do cases on behalf of investors, as you know, and I see an issue with respect to diversification, one of the things I do is try and look at how a diversified portfolio would have fared and, and sort of do a comparison there. And I'm wondering when someone comes to you on the investor side and they may have an issue how do you go about as lawyers not as investment advisors how do you go about determining whether or not someone in fact has had an issue you know what we would call one of the challenges in our show here about structuring an investment portfolio or whether someone is simply um, uh, perhaps because they don't understand that the stock market doesn't always go up that you know, it's part of the risk that was appropriate to them. How do you go about sort of working in that gray area there, where you can't look up in a book that if you're so and such age, you should have this much in this type of stock or this type of stock or this type of return? Well, each individual has the right to be as risky or as conservative as the person chooses to be. So I start with the account opening documents to see what sort of risk tolerance the customer signed off on and, and start from that benchmark. And then I look at what happened, what was actually invested in, and see, you know, was that, did that fit the, the criteria? 
Uh, I had one case for a claimant one time where in the arbitration, the, the broker admitted that the two stocks that were the main cause of the losses were, he would consider them to be speculative. Well, speculative was not even one of the choices that the, that the customer had put on, on the form. So the broker looked silly at that point. He had, he had clearly messed up. So, I mean, I start with that. And then uh, I also look at any kind of market indices I can find that seem more closely uh, aligned with what the, what the customer really wanted, whether it's standard and poor's or other measures. And, of course, if you actually go into an arbitration, you may need an expert to address those issues as an expert witness. And, and what you've referred to is, is sort of a component or maybe even the flip side of an investment policy statement, which is, as you know, in the brokerage world, there's this concept of know your customer, uh, where you go through some of the types of things that Lane was speaking about before, about the customer's net worth, their income, their risk tolerance, their needs, their age, and so on and so forth. So you can uh, try to develop a portfolio strategy that's consistent with what they want. And as you said, um, it's entirely up to the individual. If someone is very young, and even though the academic research might suggest that it's appropriate for them to be more aggressive, if all they want is CDs, and that's the only risk tolerance they can handle, then that's what's appropriate for them. Let's let's move to, to a- well, before, before we jump off on that. Sure. One thing that I, 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 I wanted to ask about is how do taxes play into the investments? So you're talking about diversification. You're talking about risk. How do you evaluate, particularly as a financial advisor, how do you evaluate somebody's tax risk that will affect their investments when they really may not be able to explain it to you? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, first off, before I jump into that, we've got to mention bonds here. And people tend to shy away from bonds when we talk about investments. And to me, they're a, a very important part of the portfolio. And they've they've gotten kind of a bad rap, especially after the past couple of years, you know, given that the bond interest rates have dropped significantly. Um, but in every portfolio needs to have some amount of bonds in it. Um, the biggest thing you need to know about bonds is that they are a risk reducer, meaning that they'll be there when stocks aren't, as long as you have the right type of bonds in the portfolio. Um, you know, I look at 2008 when stocks dropped about 40%. Well, bonds were up 5%. So, you know, I was reading in the Wall Street Journal almost every day during that time how somebody was about to retire and uh, couldn't do it because the stock market had dropped off so significantly. You know, my, my first question was, you know, how much bonds do they have in the portfolio? If somebody's close to retirement, um, we typically have a significant amount of bonds in the portfolio to protect against any kind of uh, uh, market downside. So when you say diversification, I use the word asset uh, mm -hmm. allocation, but you're mm -hmm. saying some of your diversification should be between bonds and stocks or other investments. Exactly. Exactly. And then when you get into taxes, well, taxes can be a big issue, a bigger issue uh, these days. You know, several years ago when tax rates were low, it wasn't such a big deal. But nowadays, uh, if you're making a lot of money, um, especially over $400,000, well, everything, your taxes go up significantly. So when you factor in, um, you know, federal taxes, state taxes, the fact that your exemptions go away after a certain amount and your, your itemized deductions um, phase out. Um, you're hit with an extra Medicare tax of 3.8% if you have over 250000 
in, in uh, investment income, and then another 0.9% of Medicare or payroll tax. At the end of the day, tax, it's about 50, 50% of your paychecks goes to, you know, the federal government. Unless, unless you live in New York and it's 60. Uh, yeah, or California, <laughs> it's pretty bad, too. Um, so you've definitely got to take taxes into consideration. So if somebody is in that higher income bracket, you know, I may favor some more municipal bonds. Municipal bonds are not taxed um, by the federal government. And if you own Georgia municipal bonds, um, um, you know, you, uh, they're not taxed by the state government. So it can be a big tax saving. So I may favor municipal bonds. I may also put the bonds in a qualified account or retirement account like an IRA. Uh, in that case, um, you know, bond interest that you earn is taxed at uh, an ordinary tax rate, meaning your typical tax rate as if it were payroll, uh, as opposed to capital gains tax, which is much lower. So I may favor bonds in the IRA to protect you from uh, those taxes. Now, one of the things we wanted to also talk about today was some specific fact patterns we've actually seen or thought of that that uh, go to some of these points. And uh, one thing that, that I often struggle with is uh, when, when I deal with clients, and this goes to the education component that we spoke of a little bit ago, um, a lot of people, Bill, uh, who come to us as investors are watching, you know, the television and this fella's on TV, buy this, sell this. If you'd bought X, Y, and Z, you'd be up, so on and so forth. And I think one of the challenges attorneys have, and my perception, Lane, is that, that advisors have, is trying to deal with that onslaught of information uh, and, and how that affects people's perceptions of what's appropriate or not. Do you, do you have any thoughts about that, Bill? Uh, yeah, I think in this information age, people are bombarded with information, and they can easily seek it out. Uh, I've read something recently about, um, I, I forgot what the term is, but it's about applying psychology to encourage people to invest by making it flashy and easy and draw people into investments and it seems to be a developing area of, of and, psychology and according to my daughter if you heard it on the internet it's, it's true, true. Yeah, right. <laughs> so yeah as a lawyer you have to kind of bring the clients down to earth as much as you can and get behind what they're saying and what they're thinking and find out what the real basis of it is and perhaps explain some things to them that they don't understand and one of the other uh, thoughts we had, and, and I, as I recall, Craig a number of years ago handled a case that, that dealt with this issue, Lane, which was we, we had a trust with income beneficiaries, people who received income for their lives, and then the remainder, the balance, went to uh, others. And there was a dispute about how that trust was handled. As I recall, the, the income beneficiaries were complaining that the income wasn't high enough. And of course, you know, that is a risk reward matrix that someone like you is sensitive to. Um, how would you go about trying to deal with, with that type of situation, which is not an uncommon way many trusts are structured? Yeah, a trust can be tricky. And, you know, for, you were talking about taxes earlier. You have simple and complex trust. And, uh, you know, a complex trust the top tax bracket uh, hits about uh, $12,000 in income, which is, you know, not much. So uh, you can easily uh, get hit with some pretty hard taxes in trust. So you need to also be careful uh, investing in what you invest in 
uh, in those. Um, as far as what you're talking about, I mean, it, it depends. You know, it's not much different from a person who wants to leave a significant amount of money to their heirs when they um, when they pass away. Um, we would take that in consideration when, when we're developing a retirement plan. We would uh, assume that we had, you know, they want to leave a million dollars, a million dollars when they uh, when they pass away, and we'd uh, come up with a date that we assume that would happen. Uh, I would probably approach the trust in the same way. I would sit down and you know try to understand what the client's goals are, and if it was if that was the case that they needed to leave money, well, it's just uh, it's a basic retirement plan that you put them through, um, and you can analyze that and determine you know okay here's how much income you can take out every year, and here's how much we believe that you will have uh, once uh, once you pass away at this date. Is that is that what some people call a Monte Carlo simulation type of uh, analysis? I- exactly. Whenever we talk about retirement planning, you want somebody to run a Monte Carlo simulation, meaning that it, it it's basically a computer generated estimate of what you believe or what returns are expected to do over the next so many years. So if you're, we usually use ninety five. So if you're thirty years old, we assume that you'll pass away in ninety at ninety five. That's sixty five years. Of, uh, of, of returns that you need to estimate in some way, and Monte Carlo is the best way to do this. You're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving wealth. We're talking with Bill Leonard and Lane Steinberger regarding issues and challenges in structuring and managing an investment portfolio. And your hosts today are Robert Port and Craig Frankel from the fiduciary litigation law firm of Gasowitz Frankel. Bill, one of the issues we sometimes see as attorneys is, in my sense, some confusion between clients and the advisor as to who gives directions. This often happens uh, in a husband and wife situation, or maybe we have an elderly person and a younger person who becomes involved. Um, Can you speak to some of the issues that, that either you've seen or you sense happen in that area with respect to um, how each side of that equation deals with those challenges. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, and it is a sticky situation for both the, let's say, the husband and wife or the older person and the younger person on one hand, and for the broker Which on the may other still hand. be husband and wife. Yeah, right, <laughs> exactly. Uh, the, it's very easy for the broker, I think, to just deal with whoever the dominant customer is and ignore the other one because that's the easiest way to accomplish the day-to-day operation. The problem is the broker owes duties to both of those customers, and the broker needs to find a way to educate the other customer, uh, make sure that what he or she is doing is appropriate for the other customer, and make sure the other customer is on board. Now, if the two customers are not on board, that's another problem. Uh, then the customer. How do you resolve that as the broker or as the financial advisor? Yeah, that's going to be tough. If, if one of them has a very low risk tolerance and the other one wants to speculate, then there's got to be some way to resolve the two. Uh, and I frankly don't know how you do that if they're if they're determined that they want two different things. Now, one of, one of the things we often see is that an elderly uh, person, or maybe perhaps not even elderly, but someone who's given a power of attorney to someone else, and that person with the power of attorney then takes it upon themselves to uh, have input into the account. And again, it's a situation where you could have someone who's 
goals and and desires with respect to the account that account are very different than than the person whose whose funds they actually are lane as someone in the business how do you deal with that is that is that a compliance issue for you do you have any uh well we deal with that on a regular basis um it's usually not a big issue um but it depends so and you know say they did have different risk tolerance and different um uh, different views on how the portfolio should be invested. Uh, first of all, if they each have IRAs, they're in individual names. So that's pretty easy because you can't put an IRA in a, a, a joint, uh, or you can't title it jointly. Um, it has to be in the individual's name. So we can, we can, uh, we can manage that separately if that's the case. Um, usually it's the joint account where the question may be, where they're both sharing an investment account and they have some significant amount of uh, money in that account. Um, I just have to sit down, work with the clients, and try to get them to agree on something. It may take a while, but you know, generally I can get people to agree on uh, how that account should be in- invested. Um, you know, a lot of times one one spouse is going to be uncomfortable, but um, if we can kind of get them halfway there, then um, it's usually okay. Um, you know, when we're doing retirement planning and such, it's usually the wife. I hate to say it, gentlemen, but it's usually the wife that lives longer. So we usually, when we're, we've got somebody with two different ages, um, you're usually basing everything we do on the wife's age. How are you addressing the issue that end-of-life care um, costs so much? Uh, that's an issue, and uh, again, that's uh, a, a, a you know, a thing that the younger people don't think about. Um, the first thing we look at is long-term care insurance. Um, you definitely want to try to get those, that probably around age 55 or so, they say. Um, but try to get a policy. I mean, it just, again, it depends on how much money you have. If you have $20 million, you're not spending a lot, you know, you're spending 50000 a year, you're probably going to be okay and don't need any kind of insurance. But in most cases, the normal people, they need uh, long-term care insurance. And, and it's not just about nursing homes. Uh, you know, keep in mind, long-term care insurance can also uh, handle home health care also and having a nurse come into your house every day. And I'm seeing the difference that, you know, statistically, I think everybody's going to have some need or care at the end. But the differences between spouses, one may have need and start legitimately spending the money, which is great, until the second spouse also becomes ill. Mm-hmm. And, and how do we address that when we're getting to even 55-year-olds investing their money? Well, again, I mean, it, 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 you've, you've got to get the, the spouse to agree. Um, you know, and um, – and, um, it's just it's just a situation again it's a tough situation but you just have to sit down with the other spouse and try to get them to control it and again definitely have some sort of insurance in place to protect you in that case and the example i like to give is alzheimer's i mean they say on average alzheimer's uh can be a 10 year uh 10 year situation where you may spend a million dollars or more um most people are not prepared for that um so get some sort of insurance and uh, make sure you save plenty to hedge yourself against any of those health care costs. That's kind of the X factor these days is what's health care going to be? Is Medicare going to be around? I mean, there's all kinds of issues with the Medicare system right now. I mean, probably not in the next 10 years, but, you know, 20, 30 years from now, who knows um, how much health care uh, the government's going to provide and how much you're going to have to provide. Oh, I'm confident it will be me having to provide it. I can't tell you the form or why or how. We are nearing the end of our show, so I'm going to ask each of you if you could give advice to a prospective investor who's going to be 
thinking about investing their life savings, and hopefully it's a lot of life savings, what would be the advice you would give? And, and uh, Bill, we're going to start with you. Okay. I would say, well, first I'd want to know what this person's experience with investing was. Uh, but assuming the person doesn't have much experience, I would say get on the Internet and educate yourself as much as you can about the basics of investing. And then interview uh, more than one, probably several potential stockbrokers, and uh, you know, a stat, see what kind of rapport there is. Uh, evaluate the person, as you said earlier. Look up each one on the, on the uh, Fenra website. Um, Explain what Fenra is yeah. for the normal person. Yeah, uh, that uh, used to be called the what was it? NASD. NASD. Yeah, uh, it's uh, and it's now uh, the governing body uh, that all brokers are required to belong to and if there is a dispute there's an arbitration proceeding that FINRA sponsors uh, and they provide the arbitrators for it yeah and you pay for the service and they, it's, it's a streamlined way of uh, adjudicating a dispute where you don't actually go to a lawsuit and FINRA for our listeners stands for Financial Industry Regulatory Authority and I believe the um, website is FINRA I believe it's .com. If not, it may be .org. The other place you can look for um, background on on advisors is on the SEC site, sec.gov. And without getting into the weeds too much on this, different financial advisors are registered either with FINRA or through FINRA or with the SEC. So you should check both sites and just do a general Google search to see what you find about uh, the firm and the individual that you're looking uh, to to manage your assets. Okay, Lane, your prospective customer. So they may not choose you, mm-hmm. but then again, they may, okay. uh, depending upon your answer to this question. <laughs> well, uh, first, I want to start with save, 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 and save more. That's my biggest issue with clients. Get your uh, start saving right away. You, the younger clients out there. Start it right away. If you have a 401k at your firm, definitely put in as much as the match. The match is free money. Take advantage of that. So um, that would be my first advice. And then about finding advisors, it's again, it's it's like what we talked about. There are a lot of unqualified people out there um, to uh, managing money. Um, first and foremost, look for a CFP for financial planning. Um, they have a website, CFP.net, I believe. Um, to actually manage money, use a CFA. That's uh, And you can find CFAs at cfainstitute.com. I believe that's the website. Don't hold me to that. Um, and also look for a fee-only planner if you can. NAPFA is a good site to also go to, N-A-P-F-A, um, to find fee-only planners. Let me add one more thing, and that is there's an old expression that if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Uh, I do some Ponzi scheme work where people come in and they've been promised uh, a return that just sounds too good to be true. And it almost always is too good to be true. It, it's, it's, a, it's a false promise. And the money's actually getting moved around. New investors' money is being, being paid to, uh, out to the older investors to give them those higher returns. And eventually that house of cards is going to collapse. Uh, and even if someone has a gain on a Ponzi scheme investment, the receiver or the government's going to come after them for the false profits that they earned because they weren't true profits. They're actually somebody else's money. Uh, so 
anytime people see these investments promising extraordinarily high returns, there should be a lot of bells and whistles and warning signs going off. And, and that's one reason, Bill, why it is so important, as you just suggested, that people do their research because to understand that a Ponzi scheme is making promises that are inappropriate, one needs to understand what a fair return is. And it's not 3% a month or 40% a year. It's very different in legitimate investments. And if someone has that sensitivity to a benchmark of what is appropriate, uh, they will hopefully be able to avoid Ponzi schemes. Right, we are at the end of our show, so uh, I'd like to each ask each of you to remind our audience uh, uh, of who you are, uh, give us your contact information, your website, any social media uh, that, that uh, you have that our listeners uh, may want to connect with you on. And uh, let's start with uh, you, Lane, first. Uh, you can find me at uh, www.redwoodwm.com. That's Redwood as in the Redwood Trees, WM as in Wealth Management.com. Um, or you could just Google Redwood Wealth Management Alpharetta, Georgia, also. Um, and feel free to email me too at lane, L A N E, at redwoodwm.com. And what's a phone number if anyone would want to reach you the old fashioned way? The old fashioned way, 678 527 2800. And Bill? All right. I'm Bill Leonard or William G. Leonard. Uh, on the website, it's www.taylorenglish.com, um, and you can find my bio there. The, um, my email address is bleonard at taylorenglish.com, and my phone number is 678-336-7162. I want to thank everyone for listening to Wealth Matters today, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. For more information about Gaslowitz Frankel, please go to our website at gaslowitzfrankel.com and remember to follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute using our show's hashtag Wealth Matters. Our guests today were Bill Leonard and Lane Steinberger. Please join us every fourth Wednesday of the month at 8.30 a.m. here at Wealth Matters on Business Radio X. Mm-hmm.